Well, good morning again. Thank you, Ben, for saying good morning. Good morning, everybody. Man, I don't, are you all asleep this morning? It's like, I think it's uh, the fall weather. We need, some, we need some coffee or something. All right. If you have a Bible, take it and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take the Bible that's in the pew in front of you and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. As you're turning there, I had to share this. I hope, one of the things that I've been noticing as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes is just how, for lack of a better word, relevant this series is to our lives. Everywhere I look, I'm like, oh, that's Ecclesiastes. That's Ecclesiastes. So I wanted to share just this little snippet from a news article like Google knows that I'm a sucker for these kind of stories. So anytime they have those stories about like studies that come out about why are people happy? What the happiest place in the world? Like, I always want curious. So this was on, I think, CNBC, an article about this study that people have done to find out like what, what actually makes life happier. So they actually were finding that some people that were later in life were happier. So they said, well, tell us. Tell us your learnings. Like why... Are you happy and younger people sometimes aren't? See if this sounds familiar to you. Their number one lesson for a longer, happier life was time is finite. Don't spend it regretting things. The older the respondent, the studier said, the more likely they were to say that life passes by in what seems like an instant. When the elders say that life is short, they're not being pessimistic. They're trying to offer a perspective that they hope will inspire better decisions. Ones that prioritize the things that really matter. Does this sound familiar to anybody? According to the older adults, these are the most valuable things you can do with your time. Say things now to the people you care about. Spend the maximum amount of time with your parents and children. Savor daily pleasures instead of waiting for big ticket items to make you happy. You know, like eat and drink. And number four, work in a job you love. Are you kidding me? The list of things they believed weren't worth their time was just as revealing, they said. No one said that to be happy you should work as hard as you can to get money. Keep that in mind for this morning. Number two, no one said it was important to be as wealthy as the people around you. And number three, no one said you should choose your career based on its earning potential. I want you to see, like, this, this is all over. Just pay attention in the movies you're watching, the conversations you're having, the articles online. You realize that the world is longing for the wisdom that God has given us in the book of Ecclesiastes. So this morning, we get to hear more about this wisdom that the rest of the world is just scratching their heads saying, you know, maybe there's something going on here. And we say, yeah, we've known it for thousands of years. It's been in our book. So let's turn to that book in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 7 to 16 today. Let me invite you to hear the word of the Lord. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. 
But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in March 2020, the WHO officially declared COVID-19 a worldwide pandemic. See, even the mention of it makes us shudder. That virus shaped our lives and societies for at least two years, in many ways still ongoing. Now, this morning... You all know that. What you may not be aware of is right now, there is a different epidemic plaguing America that gets far less attention. A condition with serious consequences and one whose impact on us we're only beginning to actually understand. This year, the U.S. Surgeon General confirmed that this condition is associated with a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, anxiety, and premature death. In fact, this condition has a higher impact on how long you'll live than obesity or physical inactivity. It's actually just as harmful to your life expectancy as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. This epidemic is so widespread that statistically, half of us in this room either have dealt or are dealing with it right now. So what is it? What is this condition that's destroying our health and literally shortening our lives? It's not a virus. It's not a disease. It's loneliness. It's isolation. It's the lack of meaningful connections and relationships with other people. And the scientific data show that nearly half of all of Americans have experienced it in recent years. And the study came out right before COVID, which means that wasn't the reason for it. But just consider what we just heard for a moment. It is less harmful for you to smoke almost a pack a day to never exercise and be obese than it is for you to be lonely. This is a growing problem because we have become an increasingly individualized society. And we can see this in any number of ways. 20 years ago, sociologist Robert Putnam famously summed up the trend that he was seeing by using bowling as an example. What he found as he looked at how people were interacting in society is he found in his study that participation in bowling leagues 
was way, way, way down. Even as more people than ever were actually bullied. So he had to draw the conclusion, why was that? Well, because people were bullying alone, which was the title of his famous book. What Putnam found was that we were still doing a lot of the same things we've always done, but now we just started doing more and more of them by ourselves. We lost a sense of community and of belonging to one another. And that was 20 years ago, before the internet really took off. Now in an era when we claim to be more connected than ever, we're actually incredibly cut off. Instead of sitting on front porches to talk to our neighbors and passers-by, we instead retreat to back decks. We've replaced going to the movies with streaming movies in our own home theaters. And often we've even stopped watching them together in our homes because now we each have our own personal devices to watch on. We often don't bump into each other at the grocery store because we just get them dropped off at home. Why go to the mall when Amazon can just bring things right to our door? Offices? Who needs those? We can just work remotely and have meetings on Zoom. You still go to the doctor's office? Have you tried telehealth? The college classroom? It's been replaced with an online degree. Church? Why, why get up early and go in when you could just tune in online? Now, not all those things I just mentioned are wrong. But while it has tons of useful advantages, our technology can also drive us farther away from each other. We become more isolated, trading relationships with real people for friends and followers online. We spend less time in each other's home because we can instead just call, text, or FaceTime. And this increasing isolation has left us trying to do life more and more on our own. We've embraced the American ideal of rugged individualism, where we don't need anyone else. We're just fine on our own, thank you. We're a society of lone rangers. With the irony being, of course, that not even the lone ranger was alone. He had Tonto. But if you ask adults today, many have none or very few close friends. Many people feel like they have to figure out life all by themselves. Often, the researchers we're finding, people ask the question, if I disappeared tomorrow, would anyone even notice? For most of us, there's this nagging sense of loneliness, a longing to belong, a yearning for real relationships and genuine community. But here's the thing. While we may only just be starting to realize and understand this problem of loneliness, the Bible's not surprised by it at all. In fact, it's in Genesis 2, the second chapter of the Bible, that we find the very first problem in creation. The first thing in the history of our world that wasn't very good was, guess what? God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter that it's so early and it's right there in the creation account? Because it shows us that from the beginning, we were made to be in community. That's not mainly a text about marriage. It has applications. But it's more foundationally about the fact that we weren't made to be alone in life. Instead, we were meant to be in real relationships 
And when we are alone, we feel it. And it's not good for us. And some of you know all too well this pain of loneliness. So here in our passage this morning in Ecclesiastes 4, the preacher wants to show us that living this way just doesn't work. But the good news is, he has for us, is there is another way. Instead of living life on our own, it's better together. It's meant to be lived with others, living in meaningful friendships and relationships. And to help us see that, our preacher is going to show us three different ways to live. So here's our outline this morning of the three different ways he's going to show us how to live. Now you'll notice... I, I did okay in math in school, so I didn't like mess up the order of the, the numbers there. We're going to look at them not quite in the order they are in the text. First, we're going to look at somebody who's toiling alone in verses 7 and 8. Then we're going to drop down to the end of our passage and see someone who is taking no advice. And then we're going to come back to the middle and see the way we're meant to be. We're meant to be traveling together. Okay, so that's where we're going. So let's look at the first wrong way to live. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me again. He says, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Now, notice again, just like last week, if you were here, he introduces us to a new problem by telling us what he saw. Remember last week, that was the three, three sections began with, I saw this, I saw this. So now he saw something else. And what he sees as he looks out on the world under the sun is he sees a hard worker. This guy's got a great job, but it's a demanding one. He puts in long hours often working 60, 70 hours a week. But it's not like he's doing it because he has to. It's not like he's just scraping by. He's got plenty of savings built up. He's doing just fine. He's got the nice car he really wanted. He's got all the toys at home. He's got all the stuff, but it's just never enough. Verse 8 says, his eyes are never satisfied with riches. He's got them. He's got the riches. They're just... They're not scratching that itch he feels. But here's the thing. He's got all this money and stuff, but he has no one in his life to share it with and enjoy it with. Verse 8 literally says, one person who has no second. One person who has no other. He's one, but there's no number two to go with him. We all know the, the oldie song, right? One is the loneliest number, and he, he will testify to that. Here's a man who's utterly alone with no one else. Most likely it's because he has no time for anyone else. I mean, when would he have time for a family? How could he make time for friendships with everything he's got going on? He's, he's got a job to do. I mean, we know this person, don't we? Maybe that person is you. You're so focused on your job or your career that you don't really have time for relationships. Now, we can try to dress that up. Like, we, we see this and we say, yeah, that's kind of like me. But no, that's not me because then here's how we dress it up. So it sounds better. 
We talk about needing to provide for our family. Well, I got I to take care of them, right? That's a, that's a biblical thing. Or we need to make sure that we're in a good financial spot, you know, being good stewards and all that. So we sacrifice time with friends. Then, in fact, we lose friendships because we have no time to give them. Maybe we even put off big life decisions. Like we, we're, we're waiting to get married so we can get a little bit more stable. Or, you know, we're, we're going to start a family someday, but we just want to really get our financial feet underneath us first and get a few financial ducks in a row. But in all our endless toil, all our hard work and long hours, our working weekends and travel for work, our overtime and our extra shifts, just like our friend here in verse 8, we can fail to ask the question, for whom am I toiling? In other words, who am I doing this for? And we never ask the question because if we're honest, we don't want to face the answer. No one. This guy didn't ask the question because there was no one on the other end. He's got all this money, all this stuff. He's done the work to acquire it, but now he's got no one to share it with. So he just keeps squirreling it away. He thinks, if I can just get a little more, maybe that will make me happy. If I can afford that, the house in that neighborhood, or if we could upgrade to this new phone, if we can get that car next year instead of going here, if we can go to that other place for vacation, I bet that, that'll make me happier. He thinks if he can get a little more, it'll make him happy. But did you notice what the rest of his question that he's not asking said? It says, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? That word for pleasure there can also be translated as as goodness, the good stuff. So here he is thinking he's got to work so hard. He's got to keep going, put in another shift, work, 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 so that he can get the good things in life. But it says all his work is what's actually causing him to miss out on real goodness. Because he has no other. He has no one to walk through life with. No one who really knows him. No one to enjoy the good with and to help him when it's hard. All this success at work and the financial security and the nice things he's built up have come at a very steep price. The price is loneliness. So the preacher exposes the emptiness of this way of living. He says, this, this also is vanity and a striving after wind. It's an unhappy business. Okay, so that's our first person. He's exposing two wrong ways, remember? So that's our first guy. He works hard, but in the end, he's just toiling alone. Now drop your eyes down to verse 13, and let's see our second person. Look at verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he'd been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after win. So now for our second guy, the preacher uses a slightly different strategy. Rather than just tell us, he tells us a story. He says, let me tell you a story about a king. Actually, about two kings. The story is admittedly a little challenging to follow and understand at times. 
But here's, here's what it's getting after. You've got two people in verse 13. You've got a king and a youth. And the king, we're supposed to see, is superior in every way but one. The youth, he's poor. The king would obviously be rich. The youth is young, which in this context meant he's less respected, less experienced, while the king is old. So he would be revered and he would have life's experiences to give him wisdom. But notice what it highlights about the king. He no longer knew how to take advice. That's what it says. This is the difference. Like, the, yeah, 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 the rich is poor, old, young. But what I want you to hear, the preacher says, is the old king no longer knew how to take advice. In other words, the king had also become isolated and alone, not by working too hard like our first guy. He's become isolated and alone by firing all his advisors. He didn't want anyone else speaking into his life, so he just stopped listening to others because he thought he always knew better. This is what makes him a foolish king. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So here the king, he always thought his way was the right way. It's those other people, they, they just don't get it. No one else really understands. No one else has seen this the right way. And that's how he's isolated himself. Because everyone else is wrong. And so he's made an island of himself as I'm the only one that gets it. I'm the only one that can see the right way forward. They're just not understanding the decision that has to be made here. They don't know why I'm doing this. They don't understand that I've got to live this way. By refusing to take advice, he's pushed everyone else away and said, I don't need anyone but me. He's not teachable or humble. Instead, he's stubborn and proud, which it tells us makes him foolish. Now we've got the youth on the other hand. The youth, however, is called wise. Remember, Proverbs just told us a wise man listens to advice. So we can assume that's exactly what this youth did. Even though he was young and inexperienced and poor, he was smart enough to build relationships with others and listen to what they had to say. And what happens? He started at the bottom, but now he's here. Now he's on the throne. He replaced the old foolish king. And look how popular this new king was. It says, there was no end of all the people he led. I mean, people just looked out at the crowds and they're like, wow, look at all the people that love this guy. I mean, his approval ratings were sky high. People loved him and followed him. But then we see it doesn't last. Those who come later won't rejoice in him. He had the crowds, but he didn't have the friends. And what we see in verse 16 is this way of living an isolated life by not taking advice and only having superficial relationships is also vanity and striving after wind. Now, I think there's two takeaways here for us. First, simply, are you willing to take advice? Do you get close enough to other people to let them speak into your life and then actually listen to what it is they're saying? Now, before you say quickly, yeah, of course, obviously, who is it? 
Whose advice and counsel have you listened to recently? Who would you listen to? If there's somebody that you've identified, if you're not already, go talk to them. Ask them for that advice. Say, what do you see in my life? Can you help me? Or if you're not getting this advice, do you find that when we describe the person who always knows better and no one else understands, does that sound too familiar to you? If so, the preacher shows us that's a clear way to end up alone. Second thing for us to consider is when you look around at your life, are you building a crowd or are you building friendships? Is there no end to the people who you're friends with and follow you online and who like your posts, but a lack of true friendships? Be careful about living just to be well thought of by many, but not well known by anyone. You'll end up just as lonely as the first man. All right, so now we've seen two wrong ways. And hopefully at this point you're like, man, I don't want to be lonely. This stinks. Some of you say, wow, I actually, you've been describing my life. Whether that's true or not, we've seen clearly two wrong ways that both leave us lonely and isolated. So we're left with the question, is there a better way? If, those, if that's not the way to do it, I mean, that's so much of, I hear the world telling me, just do it on my own. Look out for number one. Like, you don't need anyone else. You're strong enough. So, but you're saying, like, those, those will leave me lonely. I don't want to be lonely. So what's the better way? Look at verse nine. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. I'm going to stop there for a second. Friends, this is, this is kingdom math right here. He's simply saying two are better than one. Not just like two is a higher number, but two is better. It's worth more. It's more advantageous. Because what he's trying to help us see is that life lived in genuine community and real relationships is better than being on our own. That's why we, I call this life is better together. Now, oftentimes people will read this passage at a wedding. And again, that's fine. If you did that, you don't have to feel bad about it. But it's not really a picture of marriage. That's not what this text is about. Instead, this is actually a picture of friends or maybe business partners, but they're on a journey together. And we're going to see how that comes clearer in a second. But what we see is that as they travel together, so not in isolation, not by themselves, but together, there's a good reward for their toil. In other words, there are advantages. There are benefits to being two instead of one. So let's look at the three advantages to living in genuine community that he shows us right here in our passage. First, he shows us that one of the benefits is that if we're in community, we'll have help in times of need. Look at verse 10. Notice four. He says, I've told you that two's better than one because there's a good reward. So here's why. Number one, four, if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Okay, now I told you a second ago that this is about traveling. So keep this in mind. The journey these guys are on is taking place in the ancient Near East. Okay, they're not, they're not in a car. They're walking. Maybe they're on a donkey. But they're going through this wilderness. There's no paved roads. There's no street lights. No flashlights. So if they're traveling especially if they're traveling at night, 
Many of these roads through the hills would wind along these steep ravines. And there's loose rocks that you never know if you're going to step into something. It was very easy to stumble and fall down. So this wasn't a hypothetical, oh, that'll never happen. It's like, this was a not uncommon occurrence. And he says, if you fell down without a friend, there's no one to help you. I mean, I couldn't help, this is going to maybe date my generation. Some of you even younger than me won't know this, but I'm reading this, like there's no one to help you. I'm like, this is the medic alert lady from years gone by, right? Help, I've fallen and I can't get up. That was her. There was no one around. And he's saying, that's going to be you if you don't have a friend. Because we all have times when we fall down or get knocked down by life's trials and tribulations. Maybe it's stress at work, strained relationships, struggles with sin, health problems, discouragement. And if it's just us on our own, we might stay down. But when we're living in community, we have someone else to come lift us up. We have someone who knows when we're down. They see, they're like, oh, I saw them fall. And so they reach out a hand to pick us up. They encourage us. They pray for us. They help us in whatever way is needed to get us out of the pit we've fallen into. That's one way two is better than one. A second advantage to having a companion is that a companion provides comfort when life grows cold. Look at verse 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now, this one might seem weird to us. But remember the pictures of two travelers on a journey through the wilderness. Okay? Again, no hotels, no comfy places to stay. So you'd be sleeping outside. And at night, the temperatures would drop and it would get cold. One cloak covering you up wasn't going to cut it. So often, two travelers would lie back to back with both of their cloaks over them. And they would keep each other warm. Now, while maybe you haven't experienced this exactly, you've probably felt the warmth of friendship. You've known the comfort of not being alone and being able to share things together. There's a, there's a warmth to that. As it's been often said, friendship doubles our joys and halves our sorrows because there is comfort in closeness. That's the second one. But then we see help and comfort aren't the only benefits of two over one. Community also offers us more protection. Look at verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So again, as people are making these trips through the wilderness, they're traveling, there was this constant threat of attack from bandits and robbers. Think of when Jesus talks about the Good Samaritan, what happens? He's traveling and he gets jumped by these robbers and, robbers and bandits. And so when this happens, it says if you're alone, you're an easy target. Like piece of cake, easy money for the robbers. But if you were together, you had a much better chance of fending off any attacks you might face. As we travel through the wilderness of life, the reality is we face constant danger of attack from enemies. The world, the devil, and our own flesh are always lurking with temptations. 
And if we try to face these enemies on our own, we're easy targets. We're in trouble. But there is safety in numbers. We need each other to watch our backs and to protect us from spiritual dangers. We need real relationships so that we can have Hebrews 3 kind of community. Listen to what Hebrews 3 says. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Like, it's, it's tricky. We, we, we can convince ourselves that it's okay. We're like, that's not really sin. I'm just kind of, you know, it's a little gray. It's squishy. And we persuade ourselves that something's okay. So the passage is saying, we need to watch out for each other. That passage is not talking to an individual saying, you need to just guard yourself. It's saying, you all need to watch out for you all together so that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We need to protect each other, it says, by encouraging and warning one another every day. All right, so here's, let me give you a few more questions um, that one writer asked. I found these so helpful, so let me ask them to you to consider this morning. Number one, do you have a friend who knows when you're down, who will notice when you're in trouble, and who will pick you up when you fall? Do you have that person? Is there a specific name that comes to mind? Second, do you know what it's like to find comfort in the friendships you have with other believers? Are you experiencing warmth in your relationship with someone else? Third, do you have the protection that comes from being in this together rather than going it alone? Is someone watching your back and are you watching theirs? What the preacher wants us to see here is that we need community. We need real relationships because two is better than one. At the end of verse 12, he even tells us, yeah, two is better than one, but you know what? It's even better? Three. A three-chord strand is not quickly broken. His point is, whenever the Bible does this, like one is not as good as two, but what's even better is three. It's saying like, this is a principle that the more community you have, like there's strength in numbers. His point is saying, you can't do it alone. You need others. Now, this is all well and good, and there's a lot of wisdom here, but I, I somewhat hope at this point you're feeling a little bit of a tension. Because so far, most of what I've said and what the preacher has said in this text could be said by someone who's not a Christian. And I hope you're kind of feeling a little bit like, is this just a bunch of seven best tips for a less lonely life kind of feeling? So what makes this passage and these ideas Christian? Let me tell you. First, as I mentioned earlier, we start with God's design. God designed us to not be alone, but to be in community. The problem is that when we fell into sin, one of the consequences was that it fractured our relationships with one another. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they didn't just go hide from God. 
They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves up and hide from one another. Where there had been perfect fellowship and enjoyment of companionship, their relationship was now marked by a shame and a guilt that made them not want to be fully known by others. To keep a safe distance, to keep their guard up, to literally stay covered so that they couldn't be fully seen and known. And ever since the garden, because of our sin, we've all struggled to press into the real community we were made for. We buy into the lie that we don't need anyone else. We can make it on our own. Then we don't have time for relationships. We've got too many other important things, whether it's work or activities or just things we want to do. And we don't want to get too close to others because then they might see how messy and sinful I really am. And I look a lot better on social media or just in people's esteem of me than I am in real life. If you really knew me, you'd be like, oh, wow. So in all sorts of ways and for all sorts of reasons, we end up isolated and alone. So what's the answer to our problem? How is it that we can have the kind of community we are created to have? We, we, we want the two, not the one. How can we have it? The answer is only through Jesus. There's not a, a way out there to have, when we say real community, I mean community that you made to have. And the world can offer some imitation forms that maybe check a couple boxes, but they're not the real deal. If you want real community, it's only available through Jesus. And let me tell you why. Look at how Jesus answers the problems of our passage. So I want your eyes on the text, kind of hearing with this lens of, what Jesus is doing. Did my mic just go out? Nope, okay. Jesus accomplished all the work the Father gave him to do. So remember the first guy, he's working. But Jesus' toil wasn't just for himself. He gave himself for us to make us his brothers and sisters. He didn't want to be the one. He said, I'm going to make the second. I'm going to make the brothers and sisters to be a part of this with me. His work was to pay for our sins and make us righteous. Listen to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 says, Out of the anguish, and that word there is actually the same word for toil in our passage. So I'm going to use that word. Out of the toil of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Do you hear it? Jesus knew who he was toiling for. We don't ask the question. But Jesus knew. You say, if you ask him, for whom are you toiling? He'd say, I know because their names are graven on my hands. And their names are written on my heart. I know who I'm working for. And when the worker in our passage was not satisfied with his riches. He kept getting all this stuff that he was working for and it didn't satisfy him. When Jesus worked and gave himself for us and we were his reward, he was satisfied. He said, that's what I wanted. I wanted to bear their sins and make them righteous so that they could share the reward with me. I have someone now to share the fruits of my labor with my people. Jesus faced utter loneliness so that you and I will never have to. Think about it. The crowds turned on him. His friends abandoned him. And on the cross, even the father turned his face away. No one in history 
has ever felt as alone as Jesus did on that cross. And he did that for us. And because he did, now he promises, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So if you were a Christian, you will never be alone. Now, Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's the one who helps us in trouble. He shares the warmth of his presence. He protects us from every enemy that would prevail against us if it were just up to us. And he's the wise king who ascended to the throne even though he was born poor in a stable. And there is now no end of all the people he leads. The difference from our passage is this king's reign will never end. He'll never be forgotten. He'll never be abandoned. We will always rejoice in him. Because this Jesus is a friend of sinners. And not just that. This Jesus gives friends to sinners. See, Jesus didn't just save us from our sin. He saved us from our loneliness. Through the gospel, he makes us into a family. We can come out from our hiding finally and be truly known and loved by one another. We don't have to walk alone. Instead, we can travel this road together. And one of the main ways that Jesus helps us in our troubles, one of the main ways he comforts us with his presence and protects us from dangers is through his people. Those are not separate things. When you have a brother or sister come into your life and they help you in your moment of trial, when they comfort you, just enjoy their presence or they're a shoulder to cry on or just somebody to hug when you get that good news. That's not separate from Jesus being there. That's how Jesus is present with you. That's how he's meeting your needs. In Jesus, real community is made possible once again. So as we close, let me give you a few quick ways we can foster this community and be better together. And I'm getting a lot of, some of these were from this really helpful little book. Uh, maybe we'll get some of these sometime. But I got this at a conference. It's called, Why Do We Feel Lonely at Church? You're like, oh, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. Well, whether you're allowed to or not, some of you do. And so this is really, really good. Look at loneliness and how we can counteract it. So let me give you four quick ways we can foster community. Number one, love people more than your idea of community. Love people more than your idea of community. See, sometimes one of the biggest hurdles to us enjoying real Christian community is that we can have a very narrow and very specific idea of what we think that ought to look like. And if it doesn't look just like that, maybe like how we experienced it before in another season of life, we think, oh, well, that was good. I like that. That's what it has to look like. And we think if it doesn't, well, then there is no community. But listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer had to say about that idea. He says, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. 
So do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, if you have such a, a very particular, like this is my, he called it a wish dream. This is what I wished all of our relationships would look like. It's just, oh, it, that we would meet this often in this place. We would do these things and there would be this kind of, he says, if, you, if that's your idea of community and you love that more than the actual people that you're living it with, you're gonna end up smothering and killing community because it'll never match up or measure up to your expectations. Instead, he says, we need to put away all of our dreams of exactly what we think community should be and instead embrace and enjoy the community that God has given us. That's number one. Number two, practice hospitality. Open up your hearts, your homes, and your schedules for others. Invite others in and welcome them as Christ has welcomed you. I'm not asking you to entertain them where the focus is on you and what you have and your ability to put a good spread out. Instead, I'm asking you to show hospitality where the focus is on them and just simply sharing what you have with others. Create space for other people. Number three, pray together. This is a great quote from this little book. He said, when we pray together as believers, we are doing far more than just supporting one another. We are connecting with the Father together. We are strengthening one another in faith and hope as we seek him as one. We are seeking the presence and power of Christ for the challenges of advancing his kingdom in a lonely world. So pray together. In fact, I want to challenge you. If you at all struggle with loneliness, if you feel like, man, I'm just not connecting with people in the church the way I want to, come to the prayer gathering. Like, if, if you're saying that you can't make connections and you're not coming to the prayer gathering, I'm telling you, there may be a correlation. Come, pray with your brothers and sisters and see what God does with that. And fourth, stay present. Stay present. The reality is there's, no, there's just no shortcut to meaningful relationships. They take time. Community isn't microwaved, it's slow-cooked. But too often, if we don't find the relationships we're looking for right away, we simply move on and look for it somewhere else. Or we just live a kind of life where we just keep moving so often, both geographically and relationally, that we don't have time to, to develop real relationships. Or things might get, so, might get a little hard in relationships, so we just leave them behind and move on. But what are we missing out on when we do that? This is a quote from a guy named Joseph Hellerman in a book called When the Church Was a Family. He said, Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. Hear this. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. That's so simple and yet it might change your life. Those who stay grow. In other words, don't be quick to give up on relationships because they're messy. Stick it out and enjoy the long-term fruit God has for you.
As I close, the thought that kept coming back to me over and over this week is, I want you to hear this. Because I know I just gave you some things to, to work on and to grow in, and I stand by that. But I also want you to hear this. I praise God for how he's created a sense of family here at Chapelwood. And if, and if you don't savor it, let me just tell you, when others walk into it, I get to hear a lot of the feedback of saying, like, this is, this is awesome. I've not seen people relate to each other. Even one-time visitors comment to me. We just had, Ben and I just had coffee with a, a guy this week who visited one time and was just going on and on about the different ones of you he interacted with and just how he saw life in our body. He's like, that is, that was so cool. So encouraging. It's so, like, I love this family so much. I was reading my daughter a book about, actually it's called Meg is Not Alone. Somebody's Not Alone in a church. And it's about how this church family, like this little girl gets left behind accidentally at church by her parents. And all these different people in the church come and like help take care of her and wait till her mommy and daddy get back. And I'm reading it to Nora, totally unaware. I'm like choking back tears and she's looking at me like I'm crazy because I'm like, this just reminds me so much of our church. And I love that. So yes, is our sense of community here imperfect? Absolutely. Is it sometimes hard? Yep. Is it often messy? Oh, you betcha. But it's always beautiful. So Chapelwood, let's press in further. And if you're not yet experiencing the kind of stuff we're talking about, come on in. We want you to be known and loved by us and by Jesus. Life is not meant to be lonely. Come experience the truth that in Jesus, it's better together. Would you pray with me? Father, I do sincerely thank you and praise you for the work you've done here to bind hearts together. Lord, that is not, that is not automatic. We are all sinners with our own struggles and temptations to hide and push others away and want things our way. And God, you have graciously overcome those and created a real sense of belonging to one another. So God, I ask, would you graciously deepen and widen that? Would it just become sweeter and would more and more people come into that and experience it? Would we not take it for granted, but be vigilant to, to grow and develop our sense of friendship and relationship with one another in the gospel? So God, we thank you for Jesus who makes that possible. Thank you that he, by his death, made two into one. So that now in him we are one new man. We, you've created a new family by taking sinners and making them sons and daughters. So we praise you for that this morning. And God, we delight in your work and say, do it all the more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.